You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator David Story. It is Saturday, March the 6th, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, March 7th on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama. Today, we are talking to Dr. Chuck Keeney, a historian and author in West Virginia about the Battle of Blair Mountain. We might be taking some calls in the second half of the show and more on today's Valley Labor Report. So thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, Our announcement right at the top, the North Alabama DSA holds a necessities drive every Saturday, and that means this Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. at the IBEW Local 558 Union Hall on Clinton Avenue right across from Yellowhammer and Campus 805 in Huntsville. So if you're in the area, you want to drop off some clothes, some non-perishable food items, blankets, PPE, whatever, then swing by the IBEW Union Hall right across from Yellowhammer Brewing in Campus 805 on Clinton Avenue from 3 to 5 p.m. this Saturday and every Saturday. All donations are forwarded to the Manor House. Follow at DSA North Alabama on Twitter for more information. Uh, if you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A-L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist. That's spelled R-A-D-I-C-L Unionist. If you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments uh, to... That you can watch throughout the week. If you don't want to watch the whole show, just one thing maybe piques your interest, you can go watch it there. We upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We've got a website, thevalleylaborreport.org. You can find our work, and you can get yourself one of these nice union-made hats with a nice union bug right here beside our logo. I love it. It's it's, it's It's a really good hat, just aside from it having our logo on it. It's really nice. I like it. And finally, if you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, then consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. So our guest today is Dr. Chuck Keeney. 
He is a professor at West Virginia University. He is a historian, author of a book about the fight to uh, uh, keep Blair, uh, Blair, the site of the Battle of Blair Mountain, a um, as a you know historic grounds uh, not to be kind of tampered with, so to speak. Um, he is a founding member of the Mine Wars Museum in West Virginia. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so the way that I found him is currently, if you follow him on Twitter, at C. Belmont Kinney, uh, Kinney, C. Belmont Kinney, uh, he's doing a thread throughout this year from January to September uh, giving the timeline for the Battle of Blair Mountain uh, kind of kind of uh, Im- important events as we're leading up to this big battle. Uh, so I have found that really fascinating as somebody who knows of Blair Mountain but not someone who knows a lot about it. Uh, so we wanted to talk to him about that because uh, – that's some crazy stuff that happened a hundred years ago this year in 1921. Mine workers and the feds, uh, they they like had a battle. And so that's some really interesting stuff. So I want to learn more about that. I think it's interesting. It's going to be interesting for the audience. So Dr. Keeney, thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh-oh. Oh. Can you uh, can you hear us, Doctor Keeney? Okay, we're not having some troubles getting the audio in uh, from the Zoom meeting. Bingo, we're good now. Bingo, we're good now, Doctor Keeney. Uh, thank you for talking to us today. Thanks again for having me. It's nice to be here. There we go. There My we go. We can- <laughs> I, I was running late this morning, woke up late, and just, woo, it has been a whirlwind trying to get everything set up. So, all right. Yeah, it so, happens. Dr. Keeney, I appreciate you ta- taking the time to talk to us today. So, um, first, before we kind of get into the history, I, I, you know, what was it that attracted you to this field, to be a historian and specifically to study kind of the mine workers and their struggles in West Virginia? What was it that brought you to to that place where this is kind of this is what I want to spend my life doing? Well, it's uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a long story, but the, the simple explanation is that uh, it's in my family. And my great-grandfather was a central figure in the West Virginia Mine Wars. And I've told this story a number of times before in various formats, but it started out when I was very, very young. I was uh, maybe nine years old, uh, somewhere around, uh, around eight or nine, and it was at a family picnic, Memorial Day weekend picnic that we had. And it was the first time I had heard Frank Keeney's name, my great-grandfather's name mentioned. And it was one of his grandchildren, who was this older guy at the time, uh, who brought it up to me. And I began asking my family, who was this guy? Uh, What's going on with this? And nobody really wanted to talk about it. Hmm. Uh, All I knew was there was this vague story that there was a a war that was fought in West Virginia. And my great-grandfather played a central role in this, but there were no monuments to this war. This war wasn't in any textbook. In the eighth grade, we have a standard West Virginia studies course that you have to take in in my state. 
And the teacher didn't know anything about the Mayan Wars. Um, the teacher didn't know anything about my great-grandfather. So I began to wonder why was there this big war and nobody knew anything about it. And as I began to get a little bit older, I began to question my family members more, and they began to pass stories down to me that had been uh, brought down to them. And that's how I began to learn about it and begin to understand that there is a lot uh, of our history in, in West Virginia and a lot of labor history and you know, you, tons of history in, in America that's simply been swept under the rug. And when I began to, to find that out, uh, I began to see how the ignorance of history really manifests itself into the economic, social, political structures that we see today. And that's what led me to kind of want to expose the history, to tell the history and learn more about it. And of course, there's that personal uh, aspect of it too. Uh, I, I always grew up thinking that nothing interesting ever happened in West Virginia. <laughs> that we were kind of a boring state uh, other than, you know, Hatfields and McCoys and moonshine. And other than that, there wasn't really anything interesting that happened. There wasn't any big civil war battles, wasn't any big revolutionary war battles. And this was something very unique that you didn't find anywhere else. And uh, the more, uh, the older I got, the, the more I would uh, I became to appreciate it. And as I went to college, I became a history major and every one of my professors told me, you have, this is what you have to do. You have mm. to study this. I actually didn't want to study the mind. I didn't want to make it my main focus of study. I was actually more interested in ancient history, and I kind of wanted to go that route. But every single one of my professors said, no, you've got to do this. You've got to go and study the mind wars because it's in your blood. Mm. And I went to WVU, got a doctorate there, and uh, studied under Ron Lewis, who I think is the most significant Appalachian scholar of the last 30, 40 years. And uh, then went to Logan uh, to teach at a small college there and be found myself embroiled in this huge effort to uh, protect the Blair Mountain Battlefield from mountaintop removal coal mining. Mm. So you said that you felt like the – uh, the ignorance of history today manifests itself in a lot of like societal problems and kind of our. It, what do you mean by that? Because I hear that a lot from folks on all sides, and, and, and so like everybody is convinced that you know history, uh, you know, like history. Um, what's the word? Validates my perspective, right? So this is sure. a. This is a conservative talk radio station. We are not conservative. But that is something that I hear on this station constantly is like, oh, if only these you know, stupid libs understood history, they would know that uh, unions are bad, that uh, capitalism is good, markets are good, and there's nothing wrong with this system fundamentally. Like, what do you mean by that, by ignorance of history? Uh, you, you can take this a lot, of, a lot of different ways. You can look at it in terms of labor. You can look at it in terms of race. You can look at it in terms of gender. You can look at it uh, in terms of economics. Uh, but uh, as what we're talking about here, uh, whenever uh, I, I grew up in southern West Virginia, I've been around coal country my whole life, and I have seen how uh, the absence of history – and this is a type of history you have to understand. And I go into detail about this about my book in my book about how it was systematically taken out of history books. 
And I have a paper trail to show that, that uh, governors of West Virginia literally made sure that this didn't make its way into West Virginia studies courses mm. because they didn't want coal, the, uh, you know, the industry that dominated the state, to be seen in a negative light. Therefore, when people in coal country today that have no idea of these struggles that took place, a lot of people in coal country have no idea that these struggles even happened. And therefore, they're under the impression coal was great. Coal mm-hmm. was good. Coal was wonderful for us. Without coal, we have nothing. Without coal, we don't have an economy. Without coal, we don't have any livelihood. This is our culture. This is our identity. Mm-hmm. And that absence of history has hijacked the identity of mountaineers and of people in Appalachia. And uh, the true history gives you a much more complicated view of things. But it also uh, deconstructs this notion that the coal industry is this wonderful thing that without it, uh, you know, we would all be uh, sipping moonshine, dating our cousins here <laughs> in West Virginia. So uh, it's, it's very significant uh, in how it shapes people's current attitudes. If people knew the real history in West Virginia, Donald Trump would have never stood a chance hmm. in West Virginia. It's interesting what you're saying because we've got about 30, well, we got about 15 seconds, but I'm going to kind of throw this out to you and maybe you can address it uh, when we come back from the break. I've talked to probably 100 people, hundreds of people, and asked the same question. Why do we not learn the history in high school that we've learned as unionists going, like going to our schools and things like that? And, and more specifically, like... What changed me was Howard Zinn's book, and <laughs> it's something that is never broached in uh, you know until until you get out of high school. But we'll let, we'll talk about that some more right after the break. My apologies. You're I'm listening to, to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line, we've got Dr. Chuck Keeney with West Virginia University, a founding member of the Mine Wars Museum in West Virginia. We're talking about the Battle of Blair Mountain and some West Virginia history in general. So David posed a question uh, before the break. Why is it uh, why is it that um, why is it that why that are we they not are, learning? What, what, do <laughs> what? Why are we not learning about yeah. labor history in 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 high schools? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You okay. you said that they they've been kind of systematically. So kind of maybe lay out a little bit more of, of like how how you know that they've been systematically removing a lot of this labor history. I mean, there was a battle between mine workers and the feds in what like that's that seems like something that's worth that's noteworthy. You know. Yeah. Um, and and so. Uh, how, how do you know that that's been kind of systematically done, and why do you think that is? Okay. First of all, there's not a mystery as to why that it is. All right. Uh, first of all, history as it's taught in schools, particularly as, as it's taught in secondary schools throughout America, it is a battlefield in and of itself. 
All right. It's an ideological battlefield. And there have always been competing versions of American history that people have fought over. And we're seeing this, of course, today. You've got the 1619 Project. You've got uh, Trump's, what, 1776 Commission in, in West Virginia, for example. Uh, there's been a bill introduced to outlaw the teaching of uh, critical race theory. Uh, in our schools. You've also had bills that have gone through that have tried to outlaw the teaching of climate change uh, in West Virginia schools. So the idea that uh, uh, that you're just going to teach the truth in, in secondary schools has never really been a, a part of the conversation. It's all been about shaping young minds. And that's constant because uh, history is the way in which you can shape and mold identities and, and, and minds. Now, in West Virginia, it goes back to the 1930s, actually before that, uh, right after World War I, uh, industrialists and state politicians formed what they called the American Constitutional Association. And this is what uh, was a backlash to increasing labor uh, issues that were taking place right after World War I and the Red Scare that was taking place right after World War I. And the, the purpose of the American Constitutional Association was to uh, control school curriculum in the state. And uh, they began, they wrote the textbooks. They, um, they, they, they passed laws. Well, I have uh, letters from, for example, Homer Adams Holt in, in the uh, 1930s in, in which they specifically said, you don't put Mother Jones in a textbook. You don't put wow. Blair Mountain in a textbook. And there were other things like the Hawk's Nest disaster, the worst industrial disaster in U.S. history, in which uh, close to 800 yep. uh, workers, mostly African-Americans, were killed. That, ha that happened in West Virginia. Uh, people were buried in mass unmarked graves and out of the textbooks. Anything that's going to make industry look bad is mm. taken out. And I'm going to read uh, a paragraph from my book uh, when uh, David asked me the question. Uh, just one paragraph, and this, this kind of sums it up. I say, it's vital to understand that the mine wars were not merely about labor, wealth, and violent struggle. This was also an ideological conflict. During the mine wars, both sides of the conflict believed their actions to be representative of true American values of liberty. Among other things, this paradox reminds us that there have always been competing visions of liberty in our nation's history. When George Washington and his forces emerged victorious at Yorktown, they secured American independence, but not liberty. The war of ideas over what America is and what America should become, and in some ways the very meaning of liberty itself, really began in Philadelphia in 1787 and has continued ever since. In this context, the mine wars were not merely a labor or regional conflict, but a manifestation of the continuing struggle between competing ideological visions of what America should be and to what lengths people will go to make their vision the dominant reality. So the idea of controlling textbooks in schools is the way that the industrial power structure works to perpetuate that power structure and continue to make their vision of America the dominant reality. So that's what we have. And we have this ideological war that has been uh, that has been fought and it's still being fought uh, today. And it's I would say it's just as intense now as it's ever been. You, and I mean, you have no idea uh, how validating because here's the thing is I've asked, like I said before, I've asked literally hundreds of people 
the same question. It's always, and I've always felt like a kooky Alex Jones conspiracy theorist <laughs> by saying, that, you know, I swear to God, I believe this is being scrubbed from the textbooks because they don't want working people mm-hmm. to understand the power that they have. And now what you're saying, you're the first person that I believe I've ever heard uh, validate that. So, and, and I hated to drag us that's kind of down a rabbit hole as opposed to, uh, you know, your book, uh, The Road to Blair Mountain. But I, when you said that, I just thought, God almighty, finally, somebody that could answer that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that- <laughs> yeah, you're not, it's not a rabbit hole. It's, it's central to uh, what got me involved in the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in, cre- in helping to create that place and in our efforts to save the Blair Mountain battlefield. Mm-hmm. That's crucial. We have to save the places where these history, yeah. these historical events took place so that they, they can keep it out of a textbook. But if we, if we, keep the the battlefield protected if we start our own little grassroots museum we can still keep it going even Mm -hmm. if it's uh not in official you know it's not taught in the classroom although that's beginning to change in west virginia slowly but surely but uh we can have this uh alternative uh, and more accurate uh, view of our past as long as we keep these places protected and you have people that are willing to tell the story in museums and other formats. Yeah, yeah. I think, Jared, that kind of answers your question. Jared asked in the chat uh, that when he took West Virginia history in class uh, back in 2005, the mine wars got maybe a paragraph, and you're saying it's slow. And he asked if that's changing, and he said, and, and you said slowly but surely. So mm-hmm. we've got about two minutes left, and one more question on this, uh, on the kind of the, the backstory and the ideological fight, and then I want to get into, like, okay, what actually happened with the mine wars. But lay out really quickly, what are those two competing visions of liberty that were, that were kind of at war the Battle of Blair Mountain? Well, uh, in the Battle of Blair Mountain, it's number one, it's the ideals of uh, free market laissez-faire capitalism uh, on one hand and uh, a more uh, equitable uh, idea on the other hand. I mean, you had a big mix of ideals. It would be incorrect to say that all the miners were ideologically the same uh, that joined this rebellion. However, there were a lot of socialists that were that were involved. The Socialist Party uh, for a while in West Virginia had uh, some power and then they had some popularity in West Virginia. And believe it or not, a lot of evangelical Christians were socialists in West Virginia, which uh, if I were to go to a church and say that tomorrow morning a lot of people's heads would explode because they wouldn't um uh they wouldn't connect to themselves with that and so um it's it's those two main overarching ideas dr keeney thank you we're gonna be right back talk some more Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line, we've got Dr. Chuck Keeney. He is a West Virginia historian and a founding member of the Mine Wars Museum. So, And author of The Road to Blair Mountain. Author of The Road to Blair Mountain. So let's talk about The Road to Blair Mountain as in 
not want to talk about the book a little bit later, but the actual what? So give us the backstory before this big battle. What 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 lay the lay the groundwork for us? What was the kind of historical uh, circumstances around this battle? Okay, so West Virginia, of course, by the 1880s. Uh, they begin to understand through geologic surveys that there's a whole lot of coal in West Virginia. And outside investors begin to come in and begin buying up all of the land, taking the land a lot of times from native mountaineers that had been here for a while. My family among them, my family lost 2,000 acres to the coal industry in uh, around uh, 1883, 1884. And this happened to a lot of uh, mountain families that, that had been around for a while. They lost their land and uh, found themselves uh, working in coal camps. And so the coal industry comes in and they do in some ways kind of a hostile takeover of the state in which they control the politics, uh, the judges, um, the land, and they build up these little coal towns in which they operate these towns independently. And I think you guys are probably familiar with the company town structure, mm, yep. but in West Virginia, you had the highest percentage of coal miners living in company towns than in any other state. Company uh, towns in the neighborhood, close to ninety percent of all West Virginia coal miners lived on company property. The second highest state was Illinois, with about forty-eight percent. So twice as many uh, from a ratio twice as many in West Virginia were living in company towns, which means they had a company town, they had a company store, company church, mm. company money, company saloon. You get the point. Um, they had their mail opened. They had their on. They had their ballots filled out for them on election day. Uh, mm. They also had the brutal mine guard system, the security forces that uh, companies would have. And they were brutal. They spied on people. They posed as saloon keepers. They posed as miners. They spied on people. They beat up potential union uh, organizers. Uh, you could be beat up and lose your job for possessing the wrong kind of literature, a United Mine Workers Journal, so on and so forth. And Oh, uh, and then uh, eventually the miners themselves, you know, fight back. And you don't just have native white miners, of course. You have a lot of immigrants that are brought in, African-Americans that come up from the south. Um, and they all are, are stuck in these little company towns together. And ultimately, they end up joining forces and try to unionize. Many of them become socialists. The Socialist Party became rather popular in a lot of coal camps. My great-grandfather was a socialist. Um, and had a number of little socialist mayors in towns that were that were incorporated towns right off company property. You often had a little socialist mayor uh, right off company property. You had this on the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike. So anyway, around 1912, uh, the, the miners uh, try to organize. Now, these were big stakes for the United Mine Workers, and the reason it was was because you had the, – the UMWA had been successful in organizing the central bituminous field a couple of years before 1912. And this was you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. However, West Virginia coal operators, because they were able to keep the union out, they were able to undersell these coal operators in the central bituminous field. They were able to sell coal cheaper. 
and they were running these other co-operators out of business. So the, the co-operators of the central bituminous field told the UMWA, if you don't organize West Virginia, we're cutting our union contracts. So the UMWA had to organize West Virginia in order to stay viable as an organization. The co-operators of West Virginia felt that they had to keep the union out in order to out-compete co-operators in other states. So from the very beginning, these are extremely high stakes. And uh, they go on strike. Everybody's evicted from their homes. They live in tent colonies. And the miners begin organizing themselves into guerrilla warfare units. Um, My great-grandfather was in one of those called the Dirty Eleven. And they... Uh, blew up tipples, they tore up railroad tracks, they attacked uh, scabs, then they attacked mine guards. There were pitched battles that took place in the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike in which, you know, 15 people would be killed in one battle, 10 in another, 16 in another. Uh, Mother Jones, of course, the very famous national union organizer, comes to West Virginia. They ultimately win the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike and bring the union into the Canal coal fields. And uh, Frank Keeney, who became the leader of uh, him and Fred Mooney, who became the two big leaders during that strike. And they weren't union organizers. They were just miners who just took it over themselves. And uh, they become uh, the union leadership in West Virginia. During World War I, they successfully organized the whole state except for three counties, Mingo, McDowell, and Logan County the southernmost coal counties, and these were high coal producing counties, but they couldn't organize them because of the heavily entrenched mine guard system uh, that was there. And so they had this unionizing drive after World War One. Things get even more violent. Mingo County becomes known as Bloody Mingo. You had um, uh, a lot of events known as the Battle of Matewan, sometimes called the Matewan Massacre, the very famous gunfight that took place. Uh, you had the Three Days Battle of the Tug, a three-day battle along the Tug River on the Kentucky-West Virginia border that killed an excess of 30 people. We really don't know the exact number of people. In a lot of these gunfights, we really don't know exactly how many people were killed. And uh, they declared martial law in Mingo County. Uh, they brought in uh, troops. And uh, they began arresting miners. They, they cut off the, the family's food supplies that were living in the tent colonies. And ultimately, two individuals, Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, uh, one of them was a the chief of police in Matewan, and his deputy were murdered on the McDowell County Courthouse steps by mine guards. And that was kind of the spark that led to miners in the other coal fields decide, we're going to march from Charleston down into these counties and forcibly drive the mine guards out and release the miners that were prisoners and bring food and supplies to the people that were living in these tent colonies. Uh, The Lick Creek tent colony had become known by that time as Labor's Valley Forge. And uh, just appalling conditions families were living in And so they were trying to march south to Mingo County to drive out the mine guards. But in between Mingo County and Charleston was Logan County. And uh, there was a series of ridgelines that kind of made a natural fortress about uh, five or six miles north of Logan, town of Logan. And this is where uh, the sheriff of Logan County and the mine guards set up defensive entrenchments along a 12-mile front on these ridgelines, beginning at Blair Mountain and going up to uh, Mill Creek. It's called the Battle of Blair Mountain, but the battle was much bigger than the actual mountain. Okay, Mm -hmm. it took place along a 12-mile front for five days. And uh, miners, uh, it started out with about 5,000 miners. The numbers may have swelled up to around 15,000. 
they were organized. Um, we don't have time to get into the organization of it, but in August 1921 is when they begin marching south. They fight this five-day pitched battle uh, between company forces and uh, state troopers uh, and uh, the miners themselves uh, who were organized. Of course, the miners wore red bandanas around their necks. Uh, that had been a tradition that had been going on for quite a while at that time and uh, were referred to as rednecks uh, as a result of that. Um that's not the exact origin of the term redneck, but uh, in West Virginia, if you said redneck, that meant a union man yeah. at the time. But because the miners didn't control the press, they didn't control the media, they were portrayed as backward, ignorant hillbillies. And the term redneck kind of became associated with someone who is backward and ignorant uh, because the miners themselves didn't control the media. But to them, they, uh, the, the red bandana meant union solidarity. Um, that's what the term meant. And it, it has become this kind of scarlet thread throughout West Virginia history. Teachers, when they went on strike in 2018, they wore red bandanas around their necks uh, to recall uh, the miners of Blair Mountain. So it's been a continuing tradition. Anyway, federal troops were eventually brought in. The miners surrendered. There was a series of treason trials which took place thereafter. And uh, the mine wars kind of fizzled out after that. So that's a, a very, very uh, quick nutshell uh, of what happened. Yeah, and and it's rare that me and Jacob don't try to interject somewhere. But <laughs> we're both sitting here like 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 children in a, in a school in a schoolhouse listening to you. I mean, that's wonderful, wonderful uh, work. Well, uh, we've got about about a minute and a half left, but you, and so I think Jacob will probably want to bring you back on 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 the next uh, in the next break and talk more about your book but one of the things that i was talking to him about in the last break was you know your great grandfather leading these and you and you talked about mother jones early on and that's one of the things that most people relate probably closely to her coming in and, and helping organize the mine workers but the people that are on the ground fighting these fights such as yourself trying to preserve that history never get the recognition that's justly due of them uh from what i've read after uh brendan uh bates one of our good friends that's a professor or a teacher in west virginia mentioned your great grandfather and so i was like well i need to do some research on this and, and, it, and the research bore out the fact that he pretty much was the leader of this and you know if it hadn't been for him none of this would have been happening but we never you know it goes back to what you're talking earlier we never get to read about these these things and and as yourself preserving history i hope to god you know in the years to come that that your name will be highlighted in the fact that uh that you have went out of your way and fought some of the most powerful people in the state and and dare say in the country to preserve this this history of not only your state but what i feel like is important to the labor movement in general the history of the mm -hmm. labor movement and where that originated at yeah and we can talk a little bit about that next time the important thing is that the story is remembered yeah so uh as long as we can do that then then that's that's what matters right right well no i was talking about on the ne coming out of the next break we'll yeah yeah Okay. Yeah, we'll, we're gonna uh, we're gonna be right back with some more with Dr. Chuck Keeney talking about that. Uh, you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned.
are listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line, we've got Dr. Uh, Dr. Chuck Keeney. He is a West Virginia historian, author of The Road to Blair Mountain, uh, which is about the fight to preserve that historical um, that historical area there. And so, it, you know, in, in the last segment, you just condensed decades into like 15 minutes so that was really good that that was really <laughs> really that, that that was a really good yeah you must have been you said you've been on a lot of podcasts before uh, talking about this so you, i could tell you've had some practice there um before we actually kind of get into the fight why is it important to to you that folks know this history obviously like you fought like david said on the other side of the break you fought some of the most powerful people in west virginia to um to keep uh, kind of this this historical site for its historicity and and for future generations to learn from it why is it important that people know this history and that we don't allow it to be taken from us by politicians and bosses well, there are a lot of reasons why it's important. Um, history, when you look at it unflinchingly, it, it makes people uncomfortable. There's no uh, – uh, we always want to whitewash history in America, uh, and you can say whitewash uh, definitely in racial terms, uh, but also, of course, in, in terms of labor, in terms of a lot of other things. We like to sweep things under the rug, whether you're talking about Native American removal or the history of white supremacy or whether you're talking about labor and unions. And uh, if you are uh, – anti-union, as many of the powers in the state have, have been, uh, you don't want people to understand the significance of labor unions, and you don't want people to understand the links to which companies will go in order to, for lack of a better term, screw the working man, um, and how they will go, how far they will go to maintain control. And that's one of the reasons why the coal industry itself not only sought to take the industry or the history out of books, but to blast the very spot where that history had taken place. Um, like I said before, had uh, West Virginians really knew, known their history, then they wouldn't vote the same way that they vote. Uh, they wouldn't have the same worldview th that they have. So it, it's it, it's very important not just to identity. It's very important to, to our regional and cultural identity. But it's also important to really understand what America is and what America can become by uh, understanding these conflicts. And you have to understand these conflicts and look at them unflinchingly, uh, the good and bad aspects of it. Mm. Uh, we don't want, I don't want to romanticize this history because it was, after all, people killing one another. Mm. Um, but uh, you also, at the same time, want, want people to understand that the, it's complex and people were fighting uh, for their rights, their constitutional mm -hmm. rights. My great-grandfather said that the Battle of Blair Mountain was about reestablishing the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. It was about reestablishing the Constitution because their constitutional rights were denied them. And people need to understand that a corporation can crush a man's rights every bit as much as a government can. Mm -hmm. If you're on the conservative end of the spectrum, you're always saying big government, big government, big government. That's going to take our rights away. But big business can also take away your rights. I believe workers uh, – that uh, are working for Amazon right now, you know, are in their own struggle. 
And uh, we need to understand that you have to fight for every every inch that you get, mm. and, and that never stops. The, the, uh, in many ways, the Battle of Blair Mountain never ended. Mm-hmm. It, it just uh, relocates to new places. And so people are continuously fighting that. And you need to understand those struggles in order to understand that, that your struggle is not just the here and now, but it's a, it's, it's a thread that's been taking place over time. Right. And so... Go ahead. No, I, well, I was just going to say you, it, it not uh, what you said with the conservatives and government, what they and and tying it into big business as well, and and in many cases in conjunction, big business with government, as was the case there, and as is the case still to today, and mm-hmm. and uh, but something that you said and and doing research before we came on, you talk about blasting the history, and I think it's important to point out. Uh, or, and maybe you could speak a little bit to it about, you know, that kind of got glossed over. Blast, when you said blasting the history, you mean you meant mm-hmm. literally, literally, yeah. yes. bla- not figuratively speaking. We right. mean there was folks wanting to come in and and just completely strip mine the entire area, as well as put in. I believe it was a a national guard reserve there, you know, yeah. and all of this wonderful stuff to uh, to to make West Virginia so much greater. Uh, right. Yeah, we weren't just fighting the coal industry and the political system, but we were also fighting the military-industrial complex exactly. uh, in all of that. So we had we, we had the, you know, the whole team lined up against us, so to speak, uh, in West Virginia. And they wanted to use mountaintop removal to blast the tops of these mountains. Mm-hmm. You really have to fly over southern West Virginia and parts of eastern Kentucky to really understand, to get uh, a, an appreciation for the damage that has been done yep. to central Appalachia because of mountaintop removal. Uh, These mountaintop removal sites are vast. Some of them are 4,000 acres. And so they wanted to literally erase the history uh, by blasting the place. And we must understand that battlefields, I I feel, are sacred landscapes. And and they... Uh, you have to actually kind of walk on that soil and be on the, if you're on that mountain and you're, and you're looking down the slope and you're at a place where they had, you know, a foxhole and defensive entrenchments. And you're thinking about what would it take to get a man to climb up this hill with a machine gun bearing down on him? Mm. Uh, and, and he's not a trained soldier. Uh, you know, what would it take for you to grab a gun and go into the woods and charge up a hill when people are shooting at you with a machine gun? How desperate would you have to be? And you kind of have to go to the place and see it and feel it and mm-hmm. kind of smell the air in order to really kind of fully grasp uh, the gravity of that situation. So that's why you preserve the place. And uh, we had a tough battle We uh, over this Um uh, because, you know, a lot of coal miners didn't understand why we wanted to, to preserve the history because they themselves have been taught an alternative reality uh, in, in the textbooks. And they think that their jobs are dependent. Mountaintop removal, of course, actually is bad for employment because it, it uses half the amount of miners as underground mining does. So it has contributed to more unemployment in the region, mm-hmm. uh, not more employment, more unemployment. Mm-hmm. And uh, it devastates the water and all kinds there are all, all kinds of environmental reasons but um so we had to deal with a lot of the people not really understand what what we were doing uh, and we had to deal with a lot 
of other issues. The group I, I was in charge of, Friends of Blair Mountain, uh, I got named the president there uh, 10 years ago. And I had no experience with activism, by the way, when I got involved in this. None. I'd never even been to a protest before. I, I was apolitical, pretty much. Uh, not that I didn't have political views, but uh, I wasn't an activist by any stretch of the imagination. And suddenly I found myself in the middle of this huge controversy uh, uh, fighting, you know, the, uh, the industry that has run the state for a century. And we had to find unique ways in, in order to win. Because uh, we were immediately labeled as environmental extremists where they would say, you know, we're a bunch of tree huggers. We're a bunch of hippies. All we want to do is go up on top of the mountain, have a drum circle and sing Kumbaya, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we had to fight that uh, stigma and get people to understand the history. I refer to this as identity reclamation, as uh, you have mining reclamation in West Virginia. We were trying identity reclamation in that we were trying to, to change the attitudes of people towards preserving this history. And we were able to do so. We also had to go through a bunch of legal battles. We had to go through the West Virginia Surface Mine Board. We had to find violations of the law that coal companies were making and hold them accountable. Hmm. Uh, we had to make alliances with other groups like the United Mine Workers and even like the Sierra Club and environmental groups and try to bridge that gap. One of the things I hope people get from my book is there has been, you know, odds like serious uh, uh, conflict between environmental groups and industrial labor unions over the years. You may saw that, you know, with the Dakota Access, Access Pipeline, you know, a lot of environmentalists on the left want to stop it, but the AFL-CIO doesn't. Uh, Richard Trumka uh, decried Biden's decision to stop the, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Right. And both of those uh, groups are supposed to be under the umbrella of the left, but they're often at odds with one another. And what we were able to do is we were able to bridge that divide and bring environmentalists and, and uh, industrial unionists together. And uh, when people read the book, I hope that they understand that that's what we had to do and see that as um, a potential roadmap uh, for activism mm -hmm. uh, in the future. So you think that that was kind of your key to winning the uh, the preservation of that historical site was bringing together the labor movement and the kind of environmental le left, so to speak? Right. Blair Mountain was the common ground upon which uh, we found. And you have to find that common ground because uh, if you're divided, you fall. Right. And so yeah, you have to bring these groups together. And it's not easy. Right. Dr. Keeney, have you got some more? Uh, you know, I said we'd probably talk for maybe an hour, but uh, we've got some folks that wanted to call in and, and ask you a couple of questions. Have you got some more time? Sure. Okay. All right. So, folks, we're going to be talking some more to Dr. Chuck Keeney. We've got a caller on the line, uh, Jared from Huntsville. Uh, he wants to ask a question. He's actually from West Virginia, uh, Dr. Keeney. So he's um, so he's got he's got a little bit of a little bit of personal knowledge with the state there. So we're going to be uh, okay. letting letting him ask that question on the other side of the break. Somebody uh, put in the chat though. And this kind of goes to the contemporary relevance. Uh, he said that he used to, that this fellow used to work for Amazon. He said they broke into his car, stole his laptop, cell phone, and gun. They worked with the NLRB regional director to defeat the UFL. They worked with the police and, and stuff like that. And, you know, like, I don't doubt for a second that Amazon is doing a lot of, a lot of the things that these mining companies did uh, back in the 1920s to uh, suppress labor organizing. And, and stuff like that. And that's why these fights today are so important. 
Uh, so, folks, we're going to be right back with Dr. Chuck Keeney. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line, we've got Dr. Chuck Keeney. He is a West Virginia historian, author of The Road to Blair Mountain, and uh, we're talking to him about The Road to Blair Mountain. Uh, we got a question uh, really quick before we get to the uh, before we get to Jared. Uh, somebody asked if is there any info we know if we would like to visit the battleground. Um, Dr. Keeney, I, I figured that would be a pretty quick question that you could answer. Um, uh, yes. Um, very quickly, though, uh, Jacob, uh, in the last comment that you, that you got right before the commercial, the guy was talking about uh, you know, the people stealing his laptop and stuff. All that happened to us. My computer's been hacked six times. My phone's been hacked. Wow. Uh, our mail's been opened. We've been followed wow. by police. Uh, at times when I would drive to work, I would have a cop car trail me all the way to work uh, uh, from Charleston to Logan. Um, so we, we went through all of that, too. I've been told by my lawyers, you know, assume that every single email I send and every single text message that comes out of my phone is being read by a third party, even up till today. And even now, like people may think I'm a boring texter, but I, <laughs> I kind of assume that uh, that it's being read. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, th- yeah, that's well, yesterday on a walk around very uh, relevant. Yeah. Yesterday on a walk around downtown, I saw some I, I saw some cops uh trailing uh some prison right prisoner rights activists yesterday they were uh they were walking around uh they they had a, a bunch of signs you could tell that they were coming from a demonstration and there was a cop car following them like yeah i mean you know this yeah, happens yeah, yeah it happens now regarding the battlefield uh well, port most of the actual blair mountain is owned by coal companies uh they tend to not be very happy if you go up on the uh bat- up on the mountain itself you kind of have to sneak up there um but uh, I would say go to the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, and uh, we have a website, wvminewars.org, that you can check that out. Uh, Matewan is, of course, a central location where the mine wars took place. So, I mean, uh, there's uh, the buildings are, are still there that have bullet holes in them hmm. uh, for, from the gunfight at Matewan. So it's a very historic spot. Go to the museum. There's also Labor Day weekend. This year is going to be the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. And there's going to be an entire weekend of uh, celebrations, including a day down at Blair. Monday, the UMWA will be there, uh, as well hmm. as the Mine Wars Museum and a lot of other groups. So. Uh, we are not at a point yet. If you read the book, you can see all the efforts that we made to try to get a park uh, at Blair Mountain and try to get the companies to sell and all this kind of stuff. Uh, to date, we, 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 we don't have that, but I'm not giving up on that. Right. Dr. Keeney, is, is Matewan a regional pronunciation? Everywhere else I've heard it pronounced Matawan, but I'm, uh. I'm wondering if there's like a if there's like kind of a regional thing there because there's a there's a city just south of here called Arab, but if you read it you would you, you and you're not from here you'd reckon it's it's Arab, but it's Arab. Is that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just always been mate one. Yeah, don't call it Matawan if you go there. It's it's mate one. Okay, yeah, that's, just, it's, uh, that's just the local pronunciation. We were having that discussion in one of the breaks, and I said, I guarantee you, it's just like hey, you're right, right. Anybody outside of Alabama is going to say it's Arab. No, yeah, right. We, yeah. we call it what we want. All right, so uh, we've got Jared right. from Huntsville on the line. Jared, uh, what's your question for Dr. Keeney? 
Oh, good morning, Dr. Keeney, uh, WVU class of 2015 here. Um, I've, as I've been trying to listen into who you've obviously gone way past my knowledge of the specifics. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, when I was taking that West Virginia history class, there was only about a paragraph in the textbook related to any of this at all. Um, so I was really thinking more about how, um, and I forget where this quote comes from, but it's those who control the present change the past to control the future. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on those through lines um, up until how, you know, uh, central Appalachia is currently controlled by, you know, basically a bunch of coal barons. You know, you think about Jimmy Justice, he's, you know, coal baron who still owes, what is it, $115 million to Kentucky in back taxes. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the Manchin uh, family and their connections, you know, it's still coal more, you know, still the coal companies holding through. And then uh, just for a, uh, a silly point, I was wondering, what's your go-to order at Tudor's? Okay, so um, tutors first. Um, You know, it depends. I I have several different uh, tutors, and not all tutors are created equal, by the way. And if you don't know what he's talking about, there's a place called Tutors Biscuit World, excuse me, in West Virginia, and everybody goes to tutors. Um, I, I like the ham, egg, and cheese uh, biscuit uh, really well. But there's one in Chapmansville that actually has a BLT biscuit that I've been kind of hooked on lately. Bacon, lettuce, and tomato biscuit. But anyway, that, that's uh, – I appreciate the tutor's question. Um, yeah, it, it's still an issue uh, in the fact, I mean, uh, West Virginia locally – uh, in the last election, uh, Republicans won by a two-to-one margin in a, uh, up and down the entire ballot. And, of course, uh, they're passing a lot of laws to prevent strikes, uh, and they're, they're passing or they're, they're trying to get legislation and it's going to control the school curriculum even more. So that's not something that's gone away. And what, the way we've tried to rectify that is with, at the Mind Wars Museum, we've created a school curriculum for uh, secondary uh, teachers to use. It's on our website, and we host schools that come in and send their uh, kids. So we've hosted a lot of uh, classes that have come into the museum, give them all little red bandanas, and uh, they take the red bandanas. And then, then so we're, we're slowly making headway in all of this. I don't think it's a history that they can continually suppress. Uh, they they can try to, but uh, but over the last ten years, ten years ago, if you were in Charleston where I live now, if you'd have said Blair Mountain, people would say what, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, if you say Blair Mountain, everybody knows what it is. Uh, and so we've made a lot of progress in, in a decade. And I think what you will find is uh, in textbooks will follow uh, in time in time but but it will take a it will take some time people always say you hear people say well history will not be kind to so and so you hear people say that a lot of times history will judge you that's not necessarily true because whoever really controls the power controls the history and controls the narrative and and uh, when you look at you know what's been happening politically in in our nation the last few years, the guys who who are breaking laws and, and doing all this, they think that they're going to control the history. They think that they can write their own uh, ticket, and it's kind of like uh, West Virginia history. I've I've compared it to. Uh, the uh, inscriptions, the hieroglyphs that you find on a pharaoh's tomb, you know, uh, it, it's a little bit um, 
you're only getting the Pharaoh's version of what happened in Egypt at that time. And that's kind of what we have here in West Virginia. I wonder, in fact, how many Blair Mountains throughout world history have actually happened that we'll never even know about. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's powerful. That's really powerful. And it speaks to what we what we're battling and what Mm -hmm. what you've battled over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Jared, I think I think Jared hung up. Right. You're You're not still there, are you? Yeah, he, he hung up, but and he did have another question about the what are what are the takeaways and tie-ins from the teacher strike um, in 2018. Uh, well, uh, a lot of things. First of all, a lot of these teachers, particularly uh, in, in the coal field, they have parents and grandparents that were coal miners, and some of them had parents and grandparents that were union coal miners. And even though there are very few active coal miners today that are union members in in West Virginia and Kentucky, they know from what their parents and grandparents told me, you know, this history is a tradition that that, uh, up until very recently has been an oral tradition. It's been passed down, uh, you know, at kitchen tables, uh, by the fireplace, at family picnics, uh, potluck dinners, you know, and so it's been passed down that way. So even though it's not in the books, there are people that, that are involved in unions that know about it from their parents and grandparents. And so they took inspir- a lot of teachers and they took inspiration from that. There's a book uh, called 55 Strong uh, that's uh, about the West Virginia teachers strike. And it's the teachers themselves that are telling the stories. And they, they're very frank about the idea that uh, it's this tradition that kind of gave us um, – it's it's not that the tradition started the strike, but it kind of it's some, it's a well upon which you can draw uh, for inspiration. When you see struggles that other people have gone through in the past, uh, it, it can give you a, a boost, a momentum, um, you know, a, a jump start, so to speak. You know, many of them wore red bandanas. Many of them uh, had signs up uh, that uh, recalled Blair Mountain. You know, I was at the Capitol some of the days during the strike, and uh, the enthusiasm and the momentum was just something like I had never seen in my lifetime uh, as far as labor. And I was, I was convinced that the labor movement in West Virginia was on hospice uh, right, right before that strike broke out. I thought I was not hopeful regarding the labor movement. And you just suddenly had a huge outpouring, which is, of course, why the state is moving so radically to eliminate unions with right to work legislation. And um, and uh, they, they passed another law to try to make it illegal uh, for any kind of work stoppages uh, and, and this kind of thing. So the backlash, the, the political backlash is happening. But, I mean, it, it's just this continual ongoing struggle. And it's it's a part of our story. So it's not just part of West Virginia's story. It's part of America's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a uh, – there's a I – know, I know for a fact that there is a there is a teacher in West Virginia that, that's listening to the show right now because he was he was really excited. And and, and uh, if you want to come in, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. The phone number uh, – call in. The phone number is 1-866-494-9866, uh, 1-866-494-9866. Um, and he is – you know, he's a member of – uh, his teachers union, the WVEA, but and he's also a member of the IWW. How how has what is kind of the interplay between the IWW and the mine workers unions uh, in in the Battle of Blair Mountain and before and after? Uh, 
it, you know, to what extent, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, the Wobblies never made a lot of headway in southern West Virginia, uh, although uh, there, there were socialists. Uh, the UMWA collapsed after the Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia. My great-grandfather and Fred Mooney uh, and Bill Blizzard, the leaders of the miners uh, during uh, the armed march, were kicked out of the union by John L. Lewis. Union membership in the state dropped from 50,000 to less than 1,000 in the 1920s. The 1920s also saw the highest rate of mine accidents in West Virginia history, over 400 deaths a year Mm. in mining accidents in the 1920s. So what happened, my great-grandfather comes back, uh, reemerges during the Great Depression and forms his own union, the West Virginia Mine Workers, and creates his own party, the West Virginia Labor Party. Uh, which was a more, uh, I would I would say, a little bit more radical than even the UMWA at that time. And 24,000 miners joined his union uh, during the Great Depression. He led three hunger marches into Charleston, and they tried to elect uh, more radical left-winning. So the Wobblies never actually made um, significant headway, uh, mm-hmm. but you did have uh, an alternative unionism that formed during the Great Depression that was more uh, socialistic and bent than the direction that John L. Lewis was taking in the UMWA, which is a more conservative business unionism. Yeah, ultra conservative. I think he's yeah. never he's never looked in, in our movement. He's never looked on highly, you know, as mm-hmm. uh, as far as uh, anybody that studies labor history. Yeah, I agree with that completely. What so what do you think the difference is then between the Alabama mining industry and the West Virginia mining industry because you're saying the union density rate in in the West Virginia <clears throat> West Virginia mines today is very low. And in Alabama it's actually very high. It's, I think it's probably one of the mo- he- most heavily unionized industries in the state. I think and I, I can't I think Jack um, the 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 attorney uh, that um, his law firm advertises on the show they work a lot with UMWA I think he said the unionization rate is something like ninety or a hundred percent in the mines here in Alabama isn't that right David it was I think they I think he said they had all the mines in Alabama except for one yeah if, it's if extraordinarily it high what what is the so so what's what do you reckon the difference is there. Two words, Don Blankenship. In the 1980s, <laughs> Don Blankenship became um, a leader at Massey Energy, the number one coal producer in the state, and started a vicious, uh, effective program of deunionization in the state. The state was completely unionized. After uh, the National Industrial uh, uh, Recovery Act was passed in 33, the state unionized very quickly and stayed right. unionized into the 1980s. And yeah. so, yeah. Dr. Uh, King, I'm sorry, I pushed you right up to the break. We're going to have to talk about that some more on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line, we've got Dr. Chuck Keeney. He is a West Virginia historian, author of The Road to Blair Mountain. Dr. Keeney, thank you for uh, talking to us. This is the last segment on today's show, so make sure uh, you run by the IBEW Local 558 Union Hall to drop off your necessities uh, between 3 to 5 p.m. That's the IBEW Local 558 Union Hall on Clinton Avenue across from Yellowhammer and Campus 
605-256-8805. And uh, if you appreciate our work, if you like this interview, it costs money to stay on the air. So uh, if you'd like to support us, you can subscribe, uh, become a member on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report, or you can uh, get yourself a hat on thevalleylaborreport.org. You can go there and uh, go to the uh, shop section, get yourself a nice union-made hat, support the show, and get a nice hat. So, And hey, well, before you go on to the next one, and if you enjoy what you've been hearing today, you need to go to WVU Press and purchase yes. Dr. Keeney's book, The Road to Blair Mountain. Yeah, I talked mm-hmm. to you mm-hmm. in one of the previous breaks, and I, I purchased it this past week, and they actually sell it in a cloth edition, which I purchased, and I was very, yeah, yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah, uh, I'm so. going to have to get that. I'm a sucker. <laughs> I'm a sucker for paper paper books, like real actual yeah. paper books and especially limited edition copies so i'm probably gonna go home and get me a cloth version of it do they sell it at red emma's uh do you know dr king i don't know okay okay um, yeah. so um we may be able to help with that we'll talk to them yeah okay yeah we, we'd love we'd love to be able to buy it from red emma's red emma's is, is a is a worker-owned coffee shop and bookstore up in baltimore they do some good stuff so uh sorry about throwing you up against the post there uh i apologize i completely lost track of time and uh so so we we uh, had to cut you off there i had asked um what you reckon the difference is between the alabama mining industry as far as our unionization in west virginia because you said the unionization rate in west virginia mines today is very low and in alabama it's very high like something around on the order of like 90 percent which is like Wild, you know, it's it's really really high, and you said that uh, more or less, you reckon it kind of has to do with the repression that they face under Governor Don Blinkenship, and um and and uh, David and I were talking in the break, and and we kind of came up with something, and we were like, yeah, well that sounds good, and I and I want to pitch it to you and see what you think about it. Uh, we thought that maybe since Alabama has never historically been reliant on the mining industry, you know, we've had other, we've had a more diverse kind of set of industries that that we rely on, and so the mining industry never had like a complete hold on Alabama politics like it has in West Virginia. So the ability for the mine industry, mining industry, to completely take over the state government and do what they will with the mine workers is not has not been as um, as powerful in Alabama as it has in West Virginia. What do you think about that explanation? This is just something that we came up off the cuff. And uh, what was the actual specific repression that they faced under Don Blankenship and and moving forward? Because you said that they were completely unionized and now they're now they're not. So right. Okay, so Blankenship wasn't a governor; he was CEO of Massey. Although okay. uh, he, he, the governor didn't didn't tie his shoes without Blankenship's uh, permission. Um, yeah, the, the coal industry drove out other industries in West Virginia. For example, we had a thriving glass industry in West Virginia, and the coal industry drove it out uh, uh, because they became guys like A.B. Fleming and other guys who became state governors and, and senators drove the glass industry out because the glass industry was unionized. And they didn't want uh, any other industry that was unionized coming in. Now, in the 1980s, with Blankenship, you have what they would do is they would buy out unionized mines and then just shut down the mine. And then six months later, they would reopen it as a non-union mine. And so you had these huge strikes in the mid 80s and early 90s. 
uh, and the state uh, uh, government apparatus supported the coal industry and not the strikers. State troopers were brought in. Uh, state troopers were used as strike breakers. Uh, and the, the, these these strikes got a little bit violent as well. Uh, not as violent as the original mine wars, but they got a little bit uh, a little bit testy. I know some guys that were involved in, in all of these strikes. Some of them helped us form the mine wars museum, in fact. So. Um, Mingo County is kind of the last stronghold of unionism, and most of those miners are all retired. But uh, it was in the late 80s and early 90s. And after that, the coal industry created the, the what's called the Friends of Coal Association, in, in which they bombarded the state with propaganda. And I would argue that as much propaganda, if perhaps even more so than during the original time of the mine wars, so that they they sponsor all the sporting events. They uh, had a new form of welfare capitalism in which they build, you know, ball fields and baseball fields. You know, we, we might be tearing up the mountains and destroying the water and running off other businesses. But look at this nice little league field we built. Um, and, and this kind of thing. And so they're able to really get a hold uh, over people since uh, since the turn of the century, since the early 2000s. And that's played a really big role in, in uh, over the last 20 years of shaking. I call it the mind guard system in my book. You have the mind guard system of the mind wars. And then I have what I call the mind guard system that's used today. That's, that's this kind of propaganda by the Friends of Coal and the Coal Association that is really, uh, for lack of a better term, I hate using the term brainwashed, but for lack of a better term, has kind of played that role in uh, clouding uh, the judgment of a lot of people uh, in my home. And it's a, it's a infuriating thing to witness, in my opinion. Right, right. So, um, Dr. Keeney, I have really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us and, and being willing to talk to us for a bit longer than I had initially pitched you. <laughs> but I, I just really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's been, I think it's been really interesting. I've learned a lot. Uh, we've got about two minutes left here. Uh, what, is, what are your kind of closing thoughts? If somebody is somebody's just tuning in, just getting in their car, about to go to lunch, and they haven't heard anything, what's kind of the takeaway or, or somebody maybe forgot the first part of the interview what's the takeaway that you want folks to have uh, from the Battle of Blair Mountain and 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 this history and where where can they buy your book the first thing I would encourage people to uh, visit the Mine Wars Museum's website uh, wvminewars.org and I would encourage people to come to West Virginia on Labor Day weekend uh, for the Blair Centennial celebration. It's going to be four days worth concerts, uh, reenactments, all kinds of plays, all kind of lectures, all kinds of things. I'll, I'll be personally giving a walking tour of the town of Maywan uh, on Sunday night of, of that weekend. So come up for that. Uh, hope you guys maybe come up. You might want to do a live broadcast. That's a brilliant idea. Uh, uh, so I encourage people to come up that or get involved online, follow us on Facebook. Uh, you can find my book on uh, the WVU uh, Press site, or you can just do a quick Google search. I mean, it's obviously easy to find. But I, I want people to remember that uh, we have to confront our history in order to be able to forge a path forward in the 21st century. And there is an ongoing war over history in America, and we need to be warriors uh, for that, for our history. Mm. And I think that's part of what the Battle of Blair Mountain for Blair Mountain is all about. Right. Yeah. 
Well, we're we're. I've been wanting to come up there for quite some time. So you just sold me on on Labor Day weekend, and there you go. That would be wonderful. I yeah. think that's all right. Take yeah, we, the kids up there and let them learn mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, we've done a couple live broadcasts uh, on location before, so that sounds like a fantastic. Sounds like really so, that sounds like a fun time. So we we may we may just do that. You may be eating your words here in a few months when you see us, and you're like, ah, oh, damn, I was just trying to be nice, but the, these these guys actually took me up on it. So that's all right. I'll take you to Tudor's Biscuit World. Yeah. There you go. There down. you go. Well, I'll be looking forward to it, Doctor Keeney. Thank you so much for talking to us. You have been listening to the Valley Labor Report. Make sure you get Doctor Keeney's book, The Road to Blair Mountain. Buy our hat on the Valley Labor Report and we will see you next week.